so much, Wes. I always appreciate your leading us in song. Well, my friends, I've had a great week. I celebrated my 25th wedding anniversary. All right. Blatantly trying to get props for that. We celebrated my mother and father-in-law arriving for a wonderful visit. We've enjoyed time with them. Uh, we celebrated Justin's graduation on Friday night, not at Red Rocks Amphitheater at the Denver Coliseum, but it was still pretty great to celebrate my son and this accomplishment in his life. It has been a great month of mental health, I have to say for me. A lot of good things have come and are coming my way. But this really has been a time for us to dig down and destigmatize mental health and awareness and issues around mental wellness. For too long, it seems that we've tried to sweep under the rug or push off to the sides areas of mental and emotional health and wellness. As we've already affirmed, the church has been really good about spiritual health and healing. We've even been really good about physical health and healing. Somebody has a physical ailment, an illness, a heart attack, a high blood pressure, diabetes, we're on it, we'll pray for it, we'll help out. But somebody says, I've been diagnosed with depression postpartum depression, bipolar disorder. I've been having pan attacks lately. Sometimes in the church we've said, oh, ooh, I don't know what to do with that. I thought being a Christian meant all that stuff got better. <laughs> but not in our broken world, not in our fallen world. Yes, there is hope. Yes, there is healing. But we do not have to be afraid or shy about confronting these things in the power of Jesus and the strength of God to work for healing, wholeness, and restoration in these areas. Ruth started the series off wonderfully, the story of Elijah, when he just needed a snack and a nap, and it just set us off on a great trajectory. I sought to lay a biblical foundation for dealing with areas of mental health and wellness. And lights are spinning around me. Oh my goodness, the Spirit of God is at work now. Uh, and then last week, yeah, it was last week we talked about anxiety. And this week we are going to talk about anger, but I wanted to have a little fun with a difficult topic and we don't always do this here, but check out this movie clip. Uh, don't get too excited. We're not watching the whole movie, but this scene just has stuck with me. Is it ready to go? Can we get it going? All right. Check out this Love clip. We're going to keep this fight focused on us and that's what we need. Without him, these things could run wild. We got Stark up top. might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. Focus 
Don't ask me that's what we need. That was a new season. We don't have to keep watching it. We can turn it off there. Because <laughs> now everybody's going to go home and watch the first Marvel Avengers movie. That's my secret. That's the line. You heard it, right? That's my secret. I'm always angry. I've said it before. I'll say it again. If you could have any superpower in the world, I mean, forget, you know, razor claws coming out of your hands or x-ray vision or, or laser beams coming out of your eyeballs or anything like that. You want to be the Hulk because the Hulk has an excuse. It wasn't me. It was the Hulk. I didn't get angry. It was the Hulk. It was his fault. It was her. I mean, I mean, what a great superpower. If somebody gets you upset, angry, you can just go all out Hulk on them and just blame it on that beast that lies within. Some nozzle caught you off in traffic and you just go Hulk on them. Uh, you go home and all you wanted was to eat that leftovers, but one of your kids ate it instead. You just go Hulk on them. Uh, you, you thought that you were going to uh, you know, get in your car and just drive across town and you turn on the ignition and that empty, you know, that, that low gas light comes right on and you just wanna pound that steering wheel. I mean, you can just go Hulk and blame it on that beast from within, right? Right? I know I'm going to talk about something that every one of us to different levels, to different degrees, at different times in different ways has crept into our lives. And at times maybe, if we're gonna be honest, erupted from our lives. And that is this problem that we have with anger and where does it come from and what do we do? do with it and how do we handle that hulk that anger that wrath that can so easily seem to rise up and take us over we're going to start of course now with going to god's word because god's word is going to direct us on how we deal with this issue of anger that plagues so many of us i'm going to read ephesians chapter 4 Going to read a big chunk here, 25 through 32. It kind of jumps around to a couple ideas, but focus in on the anger and what Paul is telling us about what to do with our anger throughout this passage. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Love that foundation, just setting the foundation. We are in this together. Your joy is our joy, your pain is our pain, and what we're gonna see is your anger, your rage, your bitterness, your malice issues. Well, that, that can affect the whole body of Christ. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here's our real focus. Get rid of, get rid of, all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Let's set the stage and deal with this right out of the gate. Anger is necessary. Anger can be good. Anger can be helpful. There is such thing as good anger, but most of the anger and the anger that we're gonna be dealing with is the bad side of 
anger, the other side of that coin. But let's just lay the foundation for the upside of anger because there is an upside to anger. And the upside to anger, simply put, is what we in the church would so often call, you probably heard it mentioned before, righteous indignation. Everybody hear that one before? It's a great, it's a great word, it's a great term. When we experience righteous indignation, we need to experience righteous indignation because our God experiences righteous indignation. Righteous indignation compels us to do something about injustice, about unfairness, about sin, about evil that plagues our fallen world. Righteous indignation stirred God to see his people held in captivity and to say, no longer should my people or any people be held in slavery. Let's go set my people free, Moses. It was righteous indignation that stirred them to action. It was righteous indignation that stirred William Wilberforce then, many centuries later, to say slavery is still a problem. Let's do something about it. And it took his whole lifetime, but by righteous indignation, he convinced the Western world, not entirely, of the evils of slavery. Then, of course, we could celebrate Martin Luther King Jr. who said, well, maybe slavery has ended, but still there's racism. And we need racial reconciliation. We need racial healing. He saw the segregation. He saw the Jim Crow laws. He saw the redlining. He saw the problems. And he said, by the love of Christ through peaceful protest and nonviolence, we will not only defeat racism, but we will so move those who perpetuate it that we might win them over by the love of Christ. It was that righteous indignation that propelled him forward in our own time and in our own day. It is righteous indignation that might stir us up to say black lives do in fact matter. Protecting the lives of children and women in the Me Too movement matters. Righteous indignation should stir us up to seek change, to seek justice, to seek righteousness in our world. Thank God for righteous indignation, right? The Bible says very clearly in this passage where it starts, in your anger, do not sin. Right out of the gate, it's going to stir us to say, anger needs to always stir us towards the righteousness of God. I like how Paul puts it then in Romans chapter 12. He just tells us flat out, abhor that which is evil. Hate that which is evil. Be angry about the evils, the sin, the brokenness, the injustice, the disparities that you see in the world. And we know that we have a savior who modeled for us righteous indignation. Now let's have a little fun of this. When I talk about Jesus and righteous indignation, and we would say, did Jesus ever get angry? Somebody say it, somebody just show me you're still with me. When do you think of Jesus getting angry? The money changers, that's right. Thank you so much, Josh, you're awesome. One person here reads the Bible. Woo, all right, no, I'm sure others occasionally do. Um, here's the interesting thing. In all four gospels, that story is told. In none of those gospels does it say Jesus got angry. Oh, now you're like, oh, good things. I, you know, see, I'm just trying to always some prove my pastoral integrity and, and chops here sometimes to you. It was the zeal of the Lord that moved Jesus on that occasion. It was the zeal of Jesus, the passion of Jesus for the worship of God that moved him 
Now, I don't think it's inappropriate to say that Jesus showed anger in that, but here's the interesting thing on that occasion, and this actually comes out quite clearly in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus actually went to Jerusalem, then it was late, and he went back to Bethany, and then he prepared himself to go the next day to go to the temple and to drive out those who were corrupting the worship of God. Does that sound like lashing out in anger to you? It was actually a very premeditated and planned decision, it would appear, of Jesus to go and clear out something that he saw unjustly happening in the temple. It was holding back people from worship. It was extorting people who came to honor God. It was wrong. It was wrong. And Jesus made a decision. Yes, was anger overlaid with that? Certainly. But I think it's very interesting that he, the, the scripture make it very clear that it was his zeal, his passion, his love for the Lord that drove him to seek, some, seek something to create more righteousness and honor in the house of God. But elsewhere, we do have images of Jesus showing anger. Whenever Jesus saw the religious leaders on a Sabbath day, it says he was angry at their hard hearts in Mark chapter three. He was angered at their hard hearts towards the people who were coming to seek worship of God because he knew that they had overlaid the series of Sabbath laws that was preventing the work of God. So standing up against that injustice, he healed a man's withered hand because he knew that would be a sign of moving the kingdom of God forward. But he was angry at their hardness of heart and their lack of compassion and sympathy towards those who were in the midst of injustice and in their own suffering. We see that Jesus got angry when his own disciples actually were holding back children from coming to sit on his lap and get close and worship him. And he wanted the children to be able to come close to him. He got upset about that. And he did something about it when he said, let them come. And we see Jesus get very angry in a story that I preached on not too long ago in raising Lazarus from the dead. Remember that whole bit I gave on Jesus snorting? No, nobody remembers. That was a good part. Read about how Jesus was angry. And he was like, it said, it said he, uh, he experienced this obramamai. He was like, oh, I'm so angry at this death that is causing my friends to weep and that put my friend Lazarus in this grave. He was angry at sin. He was angry at death itself. He was angry at the brokenness of the world and he did something just and righteous and sympathetic and compassionate and kind and good to begin to unravel it. We see that righteous indignation in Jesus. So here is the thing, and let me say this so I can get on to dealing with some of the, 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 the bad side, the flip side, the other side here of, of anger. Here's how you know if you are righteously indignant. Is it mixed with grief? Are you on one hand very worked up about something, but on the other hand, like Jesus and raising Lazarus from the dead, ready to weep at the same moment? Because that is exactly what we see in Jesus. He is righteously indignant about death, and yet he is weeping alongside of Martha and Mary. That, I really think, is kind of the litmus test of a righteous indignation. Am I worked up about this, but at the same time, am I, like in a moment's notice, ready to weep about this? Because that shows that it's not just about you, but it's on behalf of others or seeking greater justice, wholeness, reconciliation in our world. 
So let that be your little guide whenever you're getting worked up about something. Does it seem equally tempered with a grief and a brokenness about the injustice or the unrighteousness of the situation that a person is dealing with, that you are dealing with, that our world is facing? That's the upside of anger. Thank God for a God who is righteously indignant about sin and brokenness and bad things in this world. But we know, and the scripture's weight is primarily towards helping us to recognize there's a lot of downsides to this good emotion of anger when it gets a hold of us and we can hulk out at any moment and lose our head and lose our cool and create destruction and wreak havoc on our own lives, on the lives of people around us, and certainly bring no glory to God. So now the unrighteous anger, what our passage tells us, do not let the sun set, do not let the devil gain a foothold in your life through your anger. Now, some people take that really quite literally, and we should take it literally in the sense of, yes, we need to resolve our anger. Does that mean you, you know, are compelled like every single night, I can't go to bed unless I, no, don't, don't, don't push it to the point of breaking. What it is clearly telling us though is, man, if you're letting the sun set on your anger, if you're letting this thing go unresolved in your life over and over again, that's what's gonna give the devil foothold. I've said this before in a sermon illustration. I forget when it came up though, but I do some rock climbing, do some rock climbing with some friends here. Rock climbing is very interesting. Most of the time when you go rock climbing, everybody wants to jump on a hold and grab on and try to do a bunch of pull-ups and you don't get very far doing that. But when you get a foothold, you can just hang out there forever. And that's the beautiful, simple illustration of what Paul is telling us. Man, when that devil gets a foothold, he can just, he can just relax there. He can just hang out and keep his foot on that bit of bitterness, that rage, that anger, that malice, and he can just make himself at home in that foothold into your life. And we've experienced that foothold because I'm guessing I'm not the only one who's experienced a sleepless night just stewing about something that then bleeds into the breakfast when you should be enjoying the rising sun and a devotion with God and saying the Lord's prayer and taking your hand and touching the heads of each of your children and saying, I bless you on this day, go and serve the Lord and, and glorify him. And no, you're just like still stewing about something and it follows you to work and it gets toxic in all your relationships and interactions with your coworkers and your boss and you're distracted when you're trying to focus on a project and you go out. When that anger gets that foothold, when you have these unresolved areas in your life, that's where the devil can just grow that root of bitterness, that seed of rage, that resentment, that malice can just start to grow in your life. Most anger, the experts will tell us then, comes from an area of loss in our lives. If we really examine then the area of anger in our life, we can usually trace it, they tell us, to some area of loss. But loss is kind of complicated, of course, because we experience loss on many levels. So it might go something like this. You really thought that you were going to get the promotion 
but then somebody got ahead of you and you lost that opportunity. And that loss can grow into an anger. Or perhaps you gave somebody your heart and you thought that they were going to cherish it and protect it and care for it all until death do you part. And they didn't. And you lost that relationship. You lost that trust. You lost that security. You lost that love. And that can grow into angerness. Perhaps one of the worst losses can happen is the loss of innocence when a child is taken advantage of. And you can never fully trust or give yourself intimately over to another person without experience and reliving that loss, that thing that was taken from you. And then that can grow into an anger and a resentment. Perhaps a rumor started in school or something happened at work and your reputation has taken a toll. Your good name has been smudged and that was taken from you and you're just, you're, you're angry about it. M maybe you just missed an opportunity. Maybe you just had one of those sliding door situations and you chose, you know, door B instead of door A and things haven't worked out for your life the way that you had hoped, the way that you had dreamed, the way you had planned about. And you just keep looking back on that moment and you're like, I blame everything on the loss of being able to make that choice again in my life. And you're just still living with that loss. So I thought that was very interesting when they said that so often times our anger stems from those areas of loss in our lives. I've been reading a book in preparation for my sabbatical uh, called uh, Atlas of the Heart. It's Brene Brown's latest book. And yeah, we all love Brene Brown. Woo so, but she has this great book. So Atlas of the Heart. It's kind of like a reference tool now. And so I've been reading through it and it, it's pretty good. It kind of gives you a map for different emotions you're feeling. So she had a very interesting thing to say. And she and, and the researchers, of course, had an interesting th thing to say about anger. And they said that anger often has something underneath it. So yes, anger stems from a loss, but that loss leads to other things. So anger is the presenting emotion. You know, we always say we're mad, sad, or glad. You know, I'm angry about this stuff. He says, so she affirms that like anger is that presenting emotion, but very often there's a deeper emotion underneath that anger. We can be angry about the anxiety attacks that we're having. Why am I incapable of doing this thing? And I keep losing control. We can get angry about experiencing depression in our lives. Why can't I just have joy like so many other people? We can experience anger from jealousy. Why do they seem to get all the breaks? We can get angry from whenever we experience shame for choices we made. Oh, I'm so dumb. Why did I do that? Why did I make that decision? Why did I keep falling into that trap again? So that's, again, another interesting thing for us to recognize in the human condition, that very often anger comes from a loss, and anger can be that presenting emotion for something that's maybe a little more difficult for us to pinpoint or to actually have the courage and the bravery to name. Frederick Beekner puts it this way. He writes this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. I'm gonna slow down on this because here's why we can sometimes not want to actually name the thing that is causing the anger in our lives. So are you with me now? 
I'm trying to be a psychologist as much as I'm a preacher this morning. I'm not trained in that field. So, so this is why it's sometimes hard for us to name that deeper thing. And, and Beekner says it's because we like anger sometimes. We just like the anger, we wanna live with the anger. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll your tongue, the bitter, the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Man, I read that and I was like, that is too painfully close to a description of my life and the anger that I've sometimes felt. We like the anger. Sometimes we want to hold on to the anger because the anger, again, sometimes like worry makes us feel like we're doing something about it, but we aren't. We're not uncovering and dealing with that deeper loss, that deeper pain, that emotional experience that we're trying to process. I'm going to guard uh, their, their um, identity here, um, but I think you could relate to a story like this. Um, Robin and I and our family is close with a number of people in our neighborhood and my neighbors never come to church, so don't worry about that. So I'll invite them forever and they'll probably never come. But um, there's a woman in our neighborhood that, that we love. And tragically, she's been diagnosed with an illness recently. And I won't say what it is, so I don't you know, give up any um, you know, um, no indiscretions here. And, and, it, and it's awful to watch her go through this. It's awful to know she's going through this cancer that's just eating away at her. But... It's like we've all seen it in her. It's like she has a double cancer now because she is so angry. She is so angry. I've been out in my driveway getting my bike ready, cleaning it up, and I can hear her yelling from the house at her husband who loves her and doesn't know how to help her. I see her walk out and slam the door and jump into the car and practically peel out. Who even knows where she's going? And we just see her going through this thing that is eating her up physically. But now we see her being eaten alive by this anger that's destroying the relationships of the people around her that love her and just really want to help her or just hold her hand or just tell her, this sucks and we're sorry and we'll just be with you through this if you'll let us. See, that's the danger of those angers. And that's why Paul is so concerned and out of compassion says, I don't want this stuff to take a foothold. I don't want it to get a root. I don't want it to remain unresolved in your life because it's not just gonna eat away at your flesh. It's gonna eat away at your soul. See, that's the brilliant insight of the ancients. The ancients, you know, some traditions, uh, they, they love to do this. Our tradition, usually we don't like to do this. They're like, oh, sin is an offense to God. Sins are awful. Um, but the ancients, they used to like to categorize sins. And we can have some problems with that, but it can actually be helpful. And the most helpful thing about categorizing sins is I guarantee you, they're gonna categorize sins differently than you or I would. <laughs> We're gonna categorize things like, oh, sexual sin, that's the worst thing right now. And the ancients are like, greed, pride, arrogance, you know, these are the things. So they would actually talk about sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit. 
Now, if we look at the deadly sins, there's a couple that are pretty obvious to name. You can be like lust, like, yeah, that's kind of a sin of the flesh. Yeah, I get that one. Sloth, yeah, that's kind of a sin of the flesh. Uh, Gluttony, yeah, 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 that's kind of a sin of the flesh. We like to think about anger as a sin of the flesh because it will literally make our flesh hot. But the ancients were brilliant and they said, it's a sin of the spirit. It's a spirit sickness. It's a spirit illness. It's a spirit sin. It's a spirit disease that is eating you up. Because think about it this way. Think about it like this. We often get this advice. I know I've gotten advice. And again, don't push this to the point of breaking it because we all need a vent on our instapot of anger of life, you know? But but we get this advice whenever we're angry about something, people are like, oh, you know, just let it all out. Just, 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 just go all in on that anger. But I warn you against that. Because if I told you, you know what, I really have a lust problem. Would you tell me, no, oh, you know what you gotta do then, George? You just gotta go all in on lust for a while. Just get really super lusty. Like just indulge every lust of the flesh you've ever had. And, and that's gonna help you. Is that gonna help me? The answer is no, thank you very much, Joy. No, the answer is definitely no, that doesn't help. If you have a sloth problem, you know what? You should just get really slothful then. Like quit doing anything. Don't get out of bed for like a, like, like take a sabbatical and don't do anything for three months. Wait, no, I'm confusing the issues here. No, no, there's certain things that, you know, oh, if you have a gluttony problem, go all in on that. Just eat, 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 eat. No, you're, that sounds crazy, right? Tell me that sounds crazy because it is crazy. It is crazy to indulge certain things that we know can do harm to us. And yet we have this idea of sometimes, you know, just go all in on that anger and it will resolve itself. But you know what? The kid is so angry that we say, oh, just let him kick the furniture. Becomes the kid who kicks the dog. Becomes the kid who punches at his schoolmates. Becomes the husband that hits his wife can become the father that beats his children. Don't go all in on that anger and indulge it. Don't go all in on that anger and indulge it any longer. Because that's not what Paul told us to do. What does Paul tell us to do? He says, get rid of it. Name it, take a hold of it, and then get rid of it throw it out, cast it out, be done with it, get rid of it. Now, easier said than done, right? Easier said than done. Just get rid of it. Well, here's what James says. Let me read another passage here for you. I think I have this one ready to go on the screens. Yep. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This is directly confronting a lot of our commonly held notions about our righteous indignation, and we're doing it on behalf of others. He's saying that most often, I, I've, I've been observing the world. This is James, the brother of Jesus. I've been watching some things for a while now, and here's what I've put together. Most of the time, you are not gloriously, righteously indignant about the evils and injustices you see in the world. You're angry about the pains of your losses. You're angry about things that have happened to you. And maybe some things, I bet a lot of things that have happened to you are awful, 
but you've allowed it to turn into an anger that's eating you alive. And that's not going to produce the kind of righteous life that Jesus wants for you. If it sounds like I'm preaching out of a very personal place, I will simply say it is so. Of course I'm preaching out of a personal place from this. Of course I wanted to roll my tongue and brew and stew in losses and things taken from me and injustices of perceived things that I haven't achieved, of frustrations and disappointments, of letdowns, of betrayals, of course, I want to ruminate on those things and think that I'm being self-righteous and rising up over it. But I'm telling you also, and I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't already know, it does not lead to the righteousness that God desires in my life. It does not lead to the righteousness that God desires for your life. In the end of going back to the Ephesians passage, again, Paul gives us one of these instructions then. I'm going to end here with this instruction. Um, in, in its simplicity, do not make the mistake that it is simplistic because what he asks us to do is far from simplistic. It might be the hardest soul work, spiritual work of your life. <laughs> Let me say that again. This is not simplistic in its simplicity because to actually do this might be some of the hardest, deepest soul work that you've ever had to do in your life. He tells us in verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another. And here it is, forgiving each other just as Christ, in Christ, God forgave you. Forgiving each other just as in Christ, God has forgiven you. He's doing what the scriptures always beautifully tell us to do. If you are struggling in this area, look to Jesus because he already did it for us. Was there anybody in the world who had more reason to be righteously indignant against the sins, the injustices, the grievances of the world than Jesus Christ? No. Was there anybody who was ever betrayed worse? Anybody who was beaten more? Anybody more crucified as if that was a thing than Jesus Christ, if anybody had reason to rail against the injustices, the losses, the things taken from him, it would be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But what did he do from the cross? He even cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ, so there we find the power, we find the strength, we find the example to actually offer forgiveness for the wrongs against us. Um, Hollywood has a lot of good examples uh, about this. Um, I was talking with my son-in-law about the Count of Monte Cristo, and I almost gave that in his example because there's a great story of a guy trying to get revenge in his anger, and it just doesn't work out. <laughs> actually, actually, it's very interesting as I thought about it. Hollywood gets it maybe better than the church and us Christians get it sometimes. Are there any really good revenge stories out there? No, somehow even Hollywood gets it and stories like the Count of Monte Cristo get it. Man, the more you seek revenge, the more it's gonna eat you alive at some point. You're gonna have to forgive. At some point, you're gonna have to forgive and get over it. Um, but one of my favorite 
this comes from uh, the movie Forrest Gump, and it's that character, Jenny. We know that as we follow the storyline of that film, how Forrest Gump is in many ways like a savior, a Christ-like figure, just always there, always grounded, always rooted, always available. And the love of his life is this girl, Jenny. And Jenny tragically experienced losses at every level like any one of us you know, can imagine. Jenny has her innocence taken. He, she has her safety taken. She has her trust taken. She has her health taken as she contracts AIDS in the story. She has literally like had everything like stripped away from her, but she always has forest. And there's that beautiful scene uh, where she goes finally uh, when she's been standing on the edge of that uh, balcony and she's in this like cocaine induced, you know, high and she's about to take her life and she remembers, you know, forest is her rock. Forest is the one always there. And she goes to him and they're walking through that field and uh, she sees the now dilapidated house where she was abused so horribly. And it's, you know, just about falling down. And she goes to that house and she just, you can picture the scene, I'm sure, in your eyes. She just starts taking those stones and she's just whipping those stones. She's whipping those stones and she's angry. And she's angry. You can feel that anger. And then she just breaks down into tears and she just collapses to the ground. And then, and then uh, Forrest just so beautifully says, Sometimes there aren't enough stones. And I love that because it so beautifully mirrors the story in Jesus's life. When a woman is brought before her and all the people are ready to stone her and Jesus just so beautifully says, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. And it says then from the youngest to the oldest, they began dropping their stones and walking away, letting go of their anger finally and walking away. There just aren't enough stones, friends. There just aren't enough stones to keep whipping at all the wrongs that you've experienced in life. And I'm not denying the wrongs. I'm not denying the pain. I'm not denying the loss. I'm not denying that. Nobody would deny that. But friends, there just aren't enough stones to bring the house down to get over the anger that's holding your, holding your heart. So just let go and let God, like the theme of our summer, and seek the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I invite DeWest to come up and he's gonna lead us in a song that's gonna help us to do that. The song is, of course, Amazing Grace, <laughs> because that is what we look to and that is what we remind ourselves when we need to experience and seek forgiveness once again. So I invite you over the course of this song just to do that simple little um, thing that we, that, that we do so often to confess your sins. And in this case, confess your anger. Confess your anger that moment in your life, that person you're holding the grudge against, that choice that you made, that thing that was taken from you, confess it, share it to God, open it up to God. Now here's gonna be the challenge. And then I wanna ask you to bless it. Confess it and bless it. I know I was trying to come up with a pastoral rhyme, but bless it, thank God for that season in your life. Try to actually thank God for that difficulty because it has helped shape and make you the person that you are and the person that God loves. And by blessing, it isn't like you're saying it was okay and it was all right and I'd go through it again or I would wish it on other people, but you're saying actually God bless that now in my life. Allow that to become a strength for me. Allow that to become a wound for me that I might be able to walk somebody else 
through healing in that area of their life. Allow that to become an area of ministry that I might use in another area of life. Allow God to actually maybe begin to bless that place of hurt or anger and pain in your life. And in that way, you will begin to experience afresh that forgiveness that we all have in Jesus Christ. Because that's, again, what Paul tells us to do. Forgiving each other just as in Christ. God forgave you. Let me say a prayer here, friends, and I do encourage you to go through that little process as we sing about God's amazing grace towards us. Heavenly Father, for the man, the woman in this place who is so held by anger, we don't want any more guilt or shame or pain to be heaped upon that person for what they're going through, but we want to name this anger and say that this is not going to lead to the kind of righteous life that you desire for us. So I pray that you will help them just to confess it, to even bless it, and to move forward in the forgiveness that we all have in Jesus Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.